My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. It's on page 1,639 in your pew Bible. Page 1,639, starting in verse 54. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. Then, seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man, he was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also, you're one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did y'all, um, any of y'all clean out your wardrobes last week, either uh, physically or spiritually? Um, I just want to thank Becky again real quick for preaching last Sunday. I don't have to tell y'all uh, that she did a great job. One of, the, one of the marks of a great sermon is how many times during the week it sort of comes back to your mind and her kind of driving metaphor of switching out your wardrobe, putting off your... Uh, dingy, worn clothes of sin and brokenness for the clean garments of God's grace and love. It's just been in my mind a lot the past week, so thanks again to Becky. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series for the penitential season of Lent entitled A Series on Sin, Where We Went Wrong. And I will just briefly remind you that the purpose of this series is to really think about the unique things that Christianity and the Christian Bible, the Old and New Testaments, have to contribute to the conversation about the, the problems in the world. Why is the world... The way that it is. Uh, because the world, you know, is often a really beautiful and amazing place. People are often good and kind and inspiring. But the world is often a really brutal place. There is pain and suffering in our lives across the globe. People are maybe just as often cruel and insensitive as they are understanding and compassionate. And that leads us to the question, why? Why is that? Lots of people have offered a bunch of different answers to this question, but uh, Christianity, I'm suggesting to you through this series, has, I think, the most convincing and the most convicting answer to this problem that you can find, and I would suggest the only really satisfying solution to the problem. Each week in this series, we're looking at one biblical word that is related to these topics. Two weeks ago, now we considered the word that is normally translated as sin, hatad in the Hebrew, hamartia in the Greek, and does anybody remember the most basic meaning of the word sin. 
It's to miss. Yes, it's to miss. We talked about the archers that could hit a, a hair off someone's head without sinning, without missing the mark. Um, when we sin, we miss the mark. God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to acknowledge the image of God in every human being. And when we fail to do this, we sin. We fall short. We also discuss, however, how the Bible describes sin as having its own sort of personality and substance, its own agency, it's a force, it's a power loose within the world in our hearts, the beast crouching by the door, the desires to consume us. And so we concluded that we have both the real responsibility to do what is right, but we also need to recognize that sometimes we fall victim to external forces of evil. And what we need, the answer to this problem of sin, is a savior that can shoot straight each and every time, that is without sin, and one who is powerful enough to slay the beast. This week, we're going to consider the word that is often translated in our English Bibles as transgression. The Hebrew word uh, for this one is pesha, and the Greek is paroptoma. Um, now, just a quick survey. Did anybody happen to use the word transgression in just a normal conversation at any time during the past week? No, no. I can't imagine that you would. Uh, it's not an everyday word. It's a Bible word. It's a churchy word. Maybe even more so than sin. Um, you may not have run into transgression outside of the Bible for I don't know, maybe your whole life, years and years. But I don't want you to let yourself conclude that that means that this is too abstract or too ancient or not relevant. There is a really intuitive, everyday sort of experience at the root of this word that I guarantee that you have felt before and will be able to resonate with. Because essentially, a transgression, according to the Bible and the imagination of the Bible, is a misdeed that's made even worse because of who it is committed by and against. A transgression, a pesha or paroptima, is when you hurt someone who trusted you or who loves you. Betrayal might be the most kind of accurate and punchy everyday contemporary word for this. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament law codes, it says if you were away on a trip or something and someone breaks into your house and steals like your grandmother's antique silver or something, then that is called robbery. But if the person who stole your belongings was your next door neighbor, then it's pesha. Then it's a transgression. And it's a whole other category of crime with punishments that are unique to that category because you should have been able to trust that person and they wronged you anyway. And this makes intuitive sense to us, doesn't it? If I, if I was away on vacation and I got a call from Raymond saying that uh, some stupid, bored teenagers broke into the parsonage and stole my television, I would be, I'd be shaken up. I'd be a little scared, maybe a little bit angry. Um, although my TV is tiny and ancient. It's probably worth like 25 bucks at this point. So I'd be confused as well. But if Raymond called me and told me that Brian and Gail Edwards from across the street, from next door, had broken into the parsonage and had just like ransacked the place and spray painted the walls with profanity and stolen my television, first of all, I wouldn't believe them. But if somehow I did become convinced that Brian and Gail was the ones that did this, well, that would just be so, so, so much worse because we know them. We, we like them. We ate Chick-fil-A and drank a beer with them last night. Um, Becca helped Gail when she had her hip replacement. We're, we're friends, I thought. I would have to rethink our entire relationship. And it would be Pesha, be a betrayal, a transgression. The examples in, in history and literature are limitless. Brutus stabbing Julius Caesar, right? When all of the Roman Empire's most trusted guards betrayed him at once. His heart broke, though, when he noticed that Brutus, his childhood friend, was among his assailants. Benedict Arnold, born and raised in what was then the American colony of Connecticut, when he betrayed the Continental Army and joined the British, he ended up slaughtering American soldiers and, and just burning down American towns that were like just blocks from where he grew up. And now he, his name literally means traitor. It's because betrayals, transgressions, Pesha, 
they run really deep. They hurt very badly. They stick around because, because Pesha breaks relationship. And in some ways, the Bible is just it's one long story of Pesha. It's a, it's a story of a transgression, of betrayal on behalf of humanity, on behalf of Israel, the church, you and I, against the all-powerful creator God who loves us and wants reconciliation with us. The story begins in Genesis 3, which is our Old Testament reading for this morning. But to really get the weight of it, we just have to remind ourselves of Genesis 2. Remember, Genesis 2 describes creation as it was meant to be. It depicts the, the honeymoon phase, so to speak, in the relationship between God and his creation, particularly between God and humanity. It's such a, when you read Genesis 2, it's just a, it's a sweet, it's an idyllic sort of scene. God seems to relate to humanity like a doting parent relates to their first child. Uh, I, I love the story of God bringing each animal one by one in front of the human, the man, um, in order to see what he would call it. Um, and whatever, whatever the man said, that became the animal's name. It just, doesn't that just sound like, like a lovely, wholesome time? God, in, in Genesis chapter 2, gives humanity all that they could ever need to be happy and content, just lavishes upon them the blessings and the comforts of the Garden of Eden. And then in Genesis 3, the text tells us that the serpent shows up. And the serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the first thing that the serpent does is he asks this seemingly innocuous question. Did God really say that you could not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, right? You can eat from every tree in the garden. It's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this question, it immediately proves the serpent's craftiness because although it seems innocent, maybe he just misheard God, it's actually very devious and, and, and sneaky because it reframes the character of God for Eve. It encourages Eve to think of God not in the terms of all of the blessings that he has lavished upon her, everything that she and Adam could ever want or need, not in the term of the intimate parent-child relationship that was established in Genesis 2, but rather it encourages Eve to start thinking of God solely in the terms of the one restriction, just the one limit that God placed on human autonomy and human self-determination. And sometimes, you know, when we read the story, we are tempted to ask that sort of common question, well, why, why even do this little test? Why put that tree in there? Why make this restriction? Why allow for temptation? And when we start asking that question, I think we really, we're just falling right into the trap that the story is laying for us, right? Or more accurately, the trap that the serpent has laid for us, because that means that we're beginning to think of God, not in terms of his love and his lavish blessings, but solely in the terms of our own desire for, for just absolute and total control over our lives and over everything. And of course, the story continues in Adam and Eve. They're tricked by the serpent. They betray the God that has created them, nurtured them, and loved them. And the relationship is broken. It's Pesha, it's transgression. Always hurts relationship. And the man and the women suddenly have lost innocence. They realize that they are naked. And as Adam Hamilton put it in our weekly Bible study this past week, Genesis 3, it's not a tale that just remains in the ancient past and ancient history. It echoes throughout history. It's a type, it's a pattern of behavior that we all tend to play out again and again. Moving to our New Testament reading for this morning. Our New Testament reading is a story of one of the most famous echoes of Genesis 3 in the history of the Bible and the church, Peter's denial of Jesus. Um, we will read this story again on Good Friday in just a few weeks, and my eyes will inevitably get a, a little bit moist. They do each and every year when we read this tragic story uh, about the, the final hours of Jesus' life. And I, I think it's the case because Peter tends to be, he's one of the most popular characters in the Bible. 
most often. And for good reason. I think that we can all sort of see ourselves in Peter at different points in the gospel stories. He is just, he's got a good-natured enthusiasm, right? There's that story of him just leaping out in the boat to swim to Jesus because he can't wait for, for the boat to get to the shore. Um, when Jesus says that he has to wash Peter's feet in order to enter the kingdom of God, and Peter says, well, then wash my head and my body. Wash all of me then. We even like his, his sort of funny story with the transfiguration. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Peter goes up to the, the mountain and sees Jesus transfigured before him, shining with Elijah and Moses. And he just starts kind of bumbling things. He says, why don't we just, should we just build like a house or something for, for you three? Like, would that be good? And the text tells us Peter had no idea what he was saying because he, he was terrified. We like Peter. We identify with Peter. And as much as we hate to admit it, it's easy to identify with Peter in this morning's story from Luke as well. And I think that's why it hits so hard emotionally. This is Peter's darkest hour. Because the moments when the chips are down, the moment when the moment of truth has arrived, and, and Peter flinch, flinches. He can't, he can't do it. Right before Jesus is led to the cross, he betrays Peter. And the text gives us that heartbreaking extra piece of narration. It says, the Lord looked turned and looked at Peter in the eye, and at that moment, the cock crowed three times. Pesha, betrayal, breaks relationship. It plagues relationship. There are all the relationships in our lives, even. Like, just like the Israelites, just like Peter, um, it, it, it can harm our relationship with God. After all, among the various things that we Christians confess, we, that we claim is true, is we, we claim that every breath in our lungs is a gift from God. Every good and positive and healthy thing that we come across in our lives, its ultimate source is found in God's grace. And sometimes we, we can understand that that is true and we feel like that is true. Um, I'm talking about your, your spiritual golden ages. Um, I think hopefully you, you've got one at a time in your life when you and God just, you were really vibing, you know, just like this, just buddies, the periods in your life when you rediscovered a glimpse, just a glimpse of what it might have been like to walk about in the garden with God in the heat of the afternoon day, naming animals, eating fruit from the trees. We, we have periods of life like that. But often, just as often maybe, maybe more often, how often do our life priorities fail to reflect the blessings that God lavishes upon us? How often do the priorities in our life fail to give evidence to that intimate relationship that God constantly desires to have with us? I think all too often. Um, it can harm our relationship with God. It also harms, on a kind of a macro scale, the relationship between human societies, um, cultures, and nations. Um, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I've been, like many of you, I'm assuming, reading a lot about the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. Um, but did you know that, in many cases, soldiers on both sides of this war in Ukraine are speaking the same language? They're both speaking Russian. Because there's a, there's a long and involved relationship between these two countries. Um, I don't know enough about it to feel confident going into depth here, but there are bonds between these two states. Families that cross the border, some members on, on either side. Uh, there's a historical relationship there. And right now, Russia, more accurately probably Vladimir Putin, under the guise of, of caring about the Russian people in Ukraine, he, he's bombing their cities, killing civilians, leaving millions homeless. And that is Pesha. That is, that is betrayal. It's transgression. Finally, let's get, it, let's get down as concrete as possible. Um, you know, despite the weird formality of this word, this, this, this crops up in our most everyday, seemingly ordinary moments of life and the most intimate relationships we have. I have an example for you that I can only use because Becca is working this Sunday. Um, that's a joke. I asked her. I asked her permission before. But uh, anyway, I, 
I think, or I hope that most of you would agree that I, I tend to be very diplomatic in conversation. Um, I, I do my best to have positive, uplifting conversations with people. I'm, not, I'm generally not eager to disagree or confront someone unnecessarily. Um, and I think that I'm fairly good at navigating even somewhat controversial topics in a way that doesn't lead to like a blow up or, or something. And that kind of care, careful and I hope kind approach to conversation, that is actually not always my instinct. Um, I often, I often have actually very strong opinions, um, and what's worse is I am often pretty convinced that I am right about them. That, that you know, I've read more books probably. I've, I'm guessing I've researched the topic at hand more thoroughly and effectively than you have. And, and the more comfortable that I am with someone, actually, the more likely I am to just tell it like it is. Um, oftentimes, the more familiar the relationship, the less likely I am. I think to actively seek common ground, to avoid unnecessary confrontation, and to make sure the other side has a chance to be heard and to be sympathized with. And my wife has, has noticed this about me, because I am more comfortable with her than I am with anyone else, which most of the time is just is awesome, it's great. But occasionally we'll be having a disagreement of some sort, and the understanding, compassionate, and careful Caleb, it, it's just he's just gone. And basically, I will conclude, listen, I am right, and you are wrong, and I don't know why we're still talking about this. You can imagine it doesn't go well. Finally, one time when this happened, she has said to me, what is even happening here? You would never argue so bluntly, so in your face, so, so cruelly even, with, with like anyone else or with, with someone from your congregation you literally never have before. So why in the world would you act this way towards your own wife, the person that you have pledged to love like nobody else? And there is just no good answer to that. Is because that, that's Pesha. That, that's transgression. And I think, this is the part I got her permission for, I think that Becca would tell you there are some rough edges in her own personality, some struggles. We all have them after all, that she puts a lot of effort into overcoming and smoothing over for other people, compassionately smoothing them out for others. But because she's so comfortable with me, is occasionally more willing to just let them stick out, even if I'm the one that bumps into them and gets hurt. And that, that's, there's Pesha again. It's pervasive crops up in even our most beloved and cherished relationships. Okay, I think we're ready to hint at Easter. Let's turn this around a little bit. What do we need? What kind of solution would solve this problem? What can cover for our transgressions and repair the trust and the intimacy that's been lost between one another and between us and God? I want us to think about it this way. Normally, the kind of relationships that we have been talking about, the kind of relationships that are vulnerable to Pesha, that can be hurt by transgressions, they're, they're two-sided, for lack of a better word. Uh, they're mutual. They're meet halfway sort of relationships. When I married my wife, I promised to love her and support her, um, and she promised to love and support me, right? Uh, when, when nations make a peace treaty with one another, country A pledges not to encroach on the territory of country B, and country B promises the same. And it's this mutuality that creates the possibility of Pesha, of transgression. Because when one, party, when one party falls and breaks the bond, falls away, when I fail to love Becca as I should, or when Russia invades a neighboring country, the relationship is broken because there's been a betrayal of that, of that mutuality and that trust. And it's hard for us to even really imagine these relationships any other way. They wouldn't really work unless both sides were putting in the effort. But then the problem is, is that when it comes to the relationship between God and the world, between God and humanity, we have shown that we are just, we're incapable of meeting him halfway. We can't do it. We can't hold his trust in the same way that he holds ours. We inevitably fall, break trust, and commit Pesha. 
So what we need is a miracle, first of all, and it's something that we don't deserve. More specifically, what we need is an act of love, a gift of love that is willing and able to meet us all the way where we are at, to bridge the gap between God and humanity in one fell swoop, from one end to the other, without the need and the requirement that we sort of hold up our end of the deal, so to speak, without the need for us to meet God halfway, because according to the testimony of the Bible and of history, I would say, we have shown that we are incapable of doing so. Like we did last time, we're going to end by simply reading a section of the New Testament that hints at the solution to this problem. We're going to read a few verses from Romans chapter 5, and this section of Romans is one of Paul's more theologically dense passages because he is attempting, remember just a few years after it happened, he's attempting to describe the meaning of the cross. It's not an easy thing to do. He's trying to communicate to the early church what the cross was able to achieve. What was its effect? How did Christ dying for our sins on the cross change our relationship and the world's relationship with God? This one might benefit from reading along with me, uh, if you'd like to. I'm in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. It's on page 1,753 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 15, page 1,753. The only adjustments that I'm going to make in this translation is that each time that the word pesha, or in this case the Greek paroptima, comes along, I'm going to translate that as transgression, just so we can kind of follow the thread that we are looking for. So how does the sacrifice of Jesus overcome the problems and the issues and the shortcomings in ourselves that we've been talking about today? Starting in verse 15. Hear these words from Paul. But the gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died by the transgression of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of that one man's trespass. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many transgressions and brought justification. For if, the, for if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one transgression resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the obedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, all the way there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.